Hello, everyone, and welcome to At WCSU. On this podcast, we tell you everything, good and bad, about the inner workings of Western Connecticut State University, even if it gets Pete Puccio in trouble. <laughs> He's our engineer, and I'm Paul Steinmetz. Today, we will demonstrate that our university is not solely populated by spittle-spewing left-wingers. No. Some of our professors are conservatives who are fully capable of spewing spittle, too. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk with one of them, Dr. Kevin Gutzman, who is a friend of mine and also a professor of history here at WestCon. He is a scholar of the U.S. Constitution and has written books not only on the Constitution, but on Presidents James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. Dr. Gutzman is also a lawyer, so if we end up having an argument today, he will win it. So Pete will also talk a little bit about how you can register to vote at the last minute because the election's coming up and we'll talk about uh, upcoming events on campus, right? Oh, and we'll also answer questions from our listeners. Oh, great. Yeah. Do we have any questions from our listeners? <laughs> uh, not this week, no. Oh, shucks. <laughs> All right. You want me to make one up? <laughs> yeah, you might as well. Okay. Oh, you know, I just found one. Here's a letter here. Dear Paul, oh. what is your voice care regimen? I love your voice. <laughs> love, Sandy. I hear that a lot, actually. <laughs> I'll talk to you offline, Sandy. Okay, I'll, I'll connect you guys. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So here's Dr. Kevin Gutzman. That was weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you put me on the spot. No, <laughs> <laughs> that was very good. So uh, in my reading up about the Electoral College more than I've ever done before, uh, one of the... Uh, arguments for it is that it protects the small the rights of the smaller states. Is that something you agree with? Oh, that certainly is true. And actually, I think people's periodic consternation with the reality of the Electoral College stems from the fact that we've lost sight of the federal nature of the United States. That is, people think, well, we have a national popular vote tally, and the winner of it obviously should be the person who's elected to the presidency. But this assumes that our, we have a national structure of government, and actually we have a federal structure of government. That is, the United States as a political entity was created not by one American people, but by 13 sovereign states. You know, if you go back and look at the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776, the Continental Congress said that the 13 colonies now were, quote, free and independent states. And the word state, of course, has lost a little bit of its 18th century significance in 21st century American English, but what the word state connoted, uh, I'm sorry, denoted from the time it was introduced into modern political science by Machiavelli in the 16th century was not a province, Andalusia in Spain or Yorkshire in England, but Spain or the United Kingdom, right? Spain was a, a state, the United Kingdom was a state, and Connecticut was a state. So when the Congress said in, on July 4th, 1776, these 
United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. It was claiming that each one of the 13 was on a par with Sweden or Russia or Spain or the United Kingdom, not that it was a province of some bigger entity. So in other words, you know, I think people in the United States still today are familiar with the old slogan, no taxation without representation, which was one of the underlying principles of the American Revolution. And that didn't mean that people were hoping to be taxed by some North American entity to be determined later. It meant that people in Connecticut thought ultimate taxing authority over them should be in Hartford, right? Not in some to-be-determined political entity made up of people from Georgia and Virginia and Massachusetts and Connecticut, but Hartford, that is, their own colonial now state government, their own colonial now state assembly. And the same thing went for people in South Carolina. They wanted to be taxed not from Britain, not by some continental entity to be determined later, but by their own state government. And so, yes, each state has democracy. That is, we have one person, one vote within Connecticut, but our union with Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and Delaware and South Carolina is a limited one because otherwise Connecticut would just have been subsumed into a union of these bigger, far more populous, far more territorially extensive entities, and really Connecticut would more or less have ceased to exist. Mm -hmm. so, so this is a basic principle of American government. This goes all the way back to the very beginning of the United States. And you hear mostly nowadays people complaining that, well, really what our federal union, what the Electoral College means is that if you live in, in uh, California, your vote doesn't count equally in choosing a president with the votes of people in Wyoming and Delaware and Connecticut. And the answer is, well, yeah, that's true. But in the Philadelphia Convention that wrote the U.S. Constitution, people from the small states insisted they were not willing to enter into a national union with far more populous and extensive states, because if they did that, basically they'd end up being governed by those people from those other places, and they didn't want to do that. They're, they're, <laughs> so essentially, at the very beginning of the Philadelphia Convention, the people from the large states at that time, which were, that is ones with big population, Virginia, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania were saying, hey, look, we want one man, one vote. We think everything should be done nationally. We think we should have a say that's proportionate to our population. And the people from the small states said, well, you know, you may have this abstract principle that you're insisting on, but here's what we're going to tell you. We won't join in a union with you if you insist on that. And actually, the Philadelphia Convention nearly broke up over this. And finally, the people from the big states had to concede that they were willing to let the small states keep a large measure of local self-control and essentially to have a, a disproportionate say in the Senate and in choosing the president through the Electoral College. Otherwise, they wouldn't have joined in the union. I mean, what mm -hmm. difference would it have made if you have the American Revolution because you don't want to be taxed by people in Britain over whom you have no control and then turn around and say, well, okay, we're going to join in a new union 
in which we'll essentially have no say because our population is so small compared to, again, in those days, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Virginia were the ones that had far, far more population. And people thought, well, no, we're not going to do that because, again, no taxation without representation meant we wanted to be governed mainly from Hartford. But we're willing to enter into a federal union with these bigger states because we think we should have one common monetary policy and one common military and one common diplomatic effort. But most of our government is going to be done by having state legislative elections, talking to our neighbors, figuring out what kind of you know roads we run, what speed uh, we have, what kind of speed limits we want, how we want our teachers to be paid. These kind of things should be hap happening entirely within our state. And the way to ensure that the central government that we're creating for these limited purposes, military, diplomatic, coining money, the way that we can ensure that that remains a limited government and most of our self-government is handled at the state level locally is by having this federal principle, including by having protection for the small states in a partly federal, partly national apportionment of the Electoral College. So. People from, from small states should be defending this. They're <laughs> saying, well, right now, my guys would win more often if only we just said Connecticut shouldn't really count in choosing the president. That's a very short-sighted approach to these matters, right? Mm -hmm. If Connecticut wanted to, it could say, well, okay, we favor one man, one vote, so we think we should get rid of the U.S. Senate. After all, Connecticut is disproportionately represented in the U.S. Senate. We actually, at any time it wants to, Connecticut can say, well, we don't think having two senators while California has two senators is really fair, so we're willing to give up our two senators, or we'll give up at least one of them, right? We could do that anytime we wanted. Notice nobody's proposing that. Why is nobody <laughs> proposing that? And the answer is because it doesn't make any sense. Why would Connecticut want to do that? Why would What it would mean, again, would be that we'd have less control over our own lives in Connecticut than we do now. And the people who were from Connecticut who were involved in making the U.S. Constitution, Roger Sherman, Oliver Ellsworth, these people saw that that wouldn't make sense. And they insisted that there be protection for the small states in the structure of the federal government, mainly by having the states be equal in the Senate, regardless of the population, and then by having apportionment of the Electoral College be based on the number of representatives plus the number of senators so that, again, small states would have disproportionate representation. But this is really a matter of self-defense, right? So that we won't be governed by Texas plus New York plus California making all the rules for us. Yeah, I think that's a uh, strong argument. In practical terms, how would Connecticut be uh, harmed if in a previous two elections where uh, the uh, popular vote um, did, not did not name the president, that's George W. Bush and Donald Trump, how would Connecticut, uh, how would that have affected Connecticut if the popular vote had won out instead of the Electoral College? Well, I think it actually, <laughs> instead of just thinking about changing the Electoral College, we should think about the overall structure of the federal government, right? So mm -hmm. it wouldn't be just having one man, one vote in the Electoral College, but also having one man, one vote in Congress, right? So we just get rid of the U.S. Senate, have only a House of Representatives, let that make the policy. Now, people in Connecticut may not realize this, 
But we have a wildly disproportionate say in Congress because our two senators represent us equally with Texas and Florida and New York and California. So um, a lot of the a lot of the rules about the way the federal government works, the way the tax system is set up, the way that uh, welfare programs are structured, the way that, for example, the U.S. Navy is funded. This is something that being a non-native of Connecticut who's now lived here for 20 years, I noticed that uh, funding for submarine construction is is a prime uh, issue in Connecticut politics, right? That that would go away immediately, or certainly it would cease to be entirely located uh, at the Groton shipyard, right? So um, there are numerous senses in which federal law reflects the fact that Connecticut has this disproportionate say that it has. So um, yeah, it's possible that um, there have been times that Connecticut didn't get its way in the Electoral College as it might have done if you had one man, one vote, but I, I'm not really sure of that. We don't know how the system would turn out. We don't know how the elections would turn out if there were a one man, one vote system. So what do I mean by that? Well, um, think of the most recent time. Hillary Clinton, if you if you tallied all, if you summed all the popular votes of all the states, she had more than Donald Trump in 2016. But that's partly a, a, a function of the fact that neither candidate was trying to amass the most popular votes. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is if, take the case of George W. Bush, if instead of trying to win an electoral college majority, George W. Bush had been worried about having a, a larger number of popular votes nationwide than Al Gore did, he would have spent a lot more time campaigning in Texas. He would have wanted to get every single uh, non-Hispanic Caucasian in Texas to go out and vote. As it is, he spent almost no effort to get anybody to vote in Texas mm. because he knew that Texans, majority of the ones who voted were gonna vote for him. It wouldn't have made any sense to campaign there. Similarly, in 2016, my understanding is not a single precinct was walked in California on behalf of Donald Trump's campaign. That is, they just wrote off California. They spent no money in California. They made no effort to get anybody to vote for them in California, okay? if. That had not been the case. If a nationwide sum of popular votes had, uh, if that, if the the system had been whoever won that tally was elected, then there would have been a Donald Trump effort in California. So mm -hmm. I think a way to think about this um, system we have now, the way to think about this criticism is think about a baseball series, right? The World Series is going on now, and how does that work? Well, uh, you want to win four out of seven games. What about the scores? Well, it doesn't matter what the scores are. It doesn't matter who, who has a larger sum of runs across the seven games. If you win two, if you win four games by two to one and lose three games by 12 to nothing, you're still the winner, even though, <laughs> even though you have far fewer total runs scored. Now, if it had been, we're going to play seven games and whoever has the most total runs across the series is going to win the series, regardless who wins each individual game, then you would, for example, take game one. Uh, you're, you're the manager of the team that's behind seven to one in the eighth inning. Generally, you're going to throw in your garbage middle reliever in the, in the ninth inning because you don't want to waste your closer. 
But on the other hand, if what you're worried about was a, a total run scored across the seven games, you might pitch your, your stud uh, closer in the ninth inning down seven to one because you were looking at the total runs across the series. So the point is, you, you understand what I'm saying? So the point yeah. is, you, you would be thinking about the question, what are our total runs going to be? As it is now, you don't care whether you lose 7-1, to 12-1, to 28-1. You've lost the game. So this is, this is the way the Electoral College works now. It means that there are some states where the candidates don't campaign much. I bet you Trump isn't spending a lot of money in Delaware, right? He's not spending a lot of money in California. And on the other hand, probably Biden, you know, isn't spending a lot of money in Idaho. He's not spending a lot of money in Florida. That's, that's part of the calculation people make. So I think we should think of a uh, national popular vote tally in the electoral college si system as just an artifact, kind of an accident. It doesn't really reflect anything. It doesn't really tell you much. Mm -hmm. And we don't know, we don't know what the outcome would have been in 2000 if George W. Bush and John Kerry had been trying, I mean, and Al Gore had been trying to see who could get the most popular votes nationwide. Neither one of them was doing that. So who knows how it would have turned. Probably Al Gore made an effort to win his home state, which is kind of an interesting. <laughs> right. He actually, he, of course, he lost because he lost his home state. But he also, I think, if he had been trying to gin up popular votes, he would have campaigned in Tennessee. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting possibility. Anyway, the point is, um, I think that these these complaints about, you know, we had the national popular vote tally, it turned out one way, but our guy didn't win. It, it's, it's an accident. It doesn't tell you anything. It ignores the fact that neither candidate was trying to win a national popular vote tally. And actually, they haven't. That is not, they aren't really trying to do that, right? Even though- No, not at all. They're not- service. They're Again, I am sure that that Biden and Harris are not campaigning in California. And and if we had a national popular vote tally, they would be campaigning in California. That would be where they'd focus. And this is something people from Connecticut ought to notice, right? They would campaign in, in California and New York and Illinois, and the Republicans would campaign in Florida and Texas and the mountain states. And we in Connecticut, we'd never hear from these people. Why would they come here? They, they'd go to Massachusetts, but they wouldn't come here because what? Nobody lives here. So <laughs> this is this is the reason, again, the fact that the 13, or actually there were only 12 states in attendance, but the, the fact that the 12 state delegations in the Philadelphia Convention that wrote the Constitution had equal say in the Philadelphia Convention meant that people from less populous states could insist that one man, one vote not be the measure of, of success in all the outcomes, right? So we, we have a House of Representatives that's based on population apportionment, although even that is not based on entirely on population apportionment because first the uh, representatives are, are doled out among the states, um, but at, which draw the electoral districts kind of interestingly. So you end up with different numbers of people even in different U.S. House electoral districts. Um, but anyway, uh, it seems to me that the, the system we have, the mainly federal system we have, actually is preferable to an entirely national one um, because first, it's decentralized. I think that's the best, best aspect of our 
national or federal system. It's decentralized. Most decision-making authority is still in states. We've had this highlighted by the COVID response, right? So mm -hmm. your governor can tell you, um, you know, shut down or not. So we've had some, we've had some severe shutdowns in New Jersey and uh, in New York, and we've had no shutdown at all in South Dakota and people can vote for whatever kind of a government they want. Mm -hmm. So this is totally unlike, say, a British system where they have one man, one vote nationwide, and they have um, central control of most political, of virtually all political questions, right? Americans didn't want that. They really, people in, in New England, for example, had no desire to have a replacement of the British government over them and be a new government in which people from South Carolina and Virginia had a lot of say. Why would that, how does that even make sense? Why would you want mm -hmm. that now? You know, if you're living in Connecticut, why would you want people from Texas to help decide your speed limits today? Why would mm -hmm. you want that? So, and in Europe, in Europe, you have these weird little parties, weird in my uh, air quotes, who uh, have influence over the government as they build coalitions. It's a different um, setup than we have, but you'd, there'd be the possibility of having that kind of thing happen in this country too, if um, you didn't have the electoral college, is that right? Well, actually, I think that's a function of the fact that instead of having our first past the post system, they have proportional representation. So the mm -hmm. reason you end up with small parties is because you have if you have a large enough con, uh, constituency and then you have um, proportional representation, um, if you have three, four, five, six percent of the vote, you can end up with seats in, say, the German parliament. So mm -hmm. we, even if we had a national, whether federal or national, as long as we have first past the post, as long as you have to get 50 percent plus one to be elected, you're not going to have mm -hmm. splinter parties representing kooks and you know, violent fanatics and so on, you know, actual, you remember a few years back, Mussolini's granddaughter was actually in the Italian parliament. She was yeah. a fascist, right? So we're not going to have that in America as long as we have first past the post, basically, as long as we don't have proportional representation. Would you have more people running? You wouldn't have a two-party system, right? Would you have right. uh, s several parties running for president? Sure, if you had proportional representation. And some people say they'd like that. And my answer is, why would you like that? That that <laughs> That's how you end up with real extreme. You know, we know nowadays we have these two political parties and they call each other names and so on, right? But they want to make each other sound horrible. But if you have proportional representation, you would end up with actual extremists in your legislature, right? I don't think we want that. So, right. yeah. <laughs> to... Um... Uh, so I was watching the documentary that you're featured in, and right at the beginning it says rated 13 plus for nudity and violence, and I almost turned it off. You weren't nude in that uh, documentary, were you? Not that I recall. <laughs> I suppose if I had been, you know, it would be in the advertising. Yeah, that's probably true. You're right. <laughs> well... It sounds like uh, the Electoral College is going to be with us for a while, no matter what happens with the popular vote in this uh, coming election. You know, the funny thing about that is occasionally you do hear howling about it. So, you know, especially when you have a, one of these outcomes like in 2016, where, again, you, you, you tally the runs across the seven games, you tally the popular votes across 50 states in D.C., and, and it, it 
yields a different outcome from the electoral college outcome. But people don't actually take the steps they could take to reduce the extent to which we don't have one man, one vote. So, for example, um, former Vice President Biden for years and years and years was a senator from Delaware. And I noticed he never said, I think Delaware should give up one of its senators because it's not fair to California that we have an equal number of senators with it. Delaware could do that any time. Connecticut, too, can say, well, we don't think it's fair. We have the same number of senators as Texas, so we want to give one up, right? So why why would people ignore the fact that they're not willing to give up a senator and say, but we want to we want to give up the partly federal element in apportionment of the electoral college? I think it doesn't make any sense. It's just a kind of knee-jerk reaction to one one electoral college outcome. And again, I don't think it's reflecting uh, an actual uh, deep consideration of the way that the Electoral College is structured. I, mm -hmm. I think the Electoral College is, is really a brilliant, um, really a brilliant mechanism. I, I am a, the more I've thought about it, the more I've decided that I can't really think of an alternative I would prefer. And you can kind of imagine how some of uh, the, the history of the country would be without it now. And uh, there's a lot of bad alternatives, I think. I think, yes, there are a lot of bad alternatives. There are a lot of bad alternatives. The main one is you could end up with, um, you could end up with a situation in which there are some states where presidential candidates just never campaigned. Why would they ever uh, campaign? So they would be the small states like Connecticut or Rhode Island or Delaware or ones with no population like Montana or Wyoming and or New Mexico, right? So Hawaii, why would anybody ever pay them any attention? And if you're, if you're living in a state like that, especially, I don't know why you'd want to get rid of the Electoral College, right? Why would Connecticut say, let's get rid of it? Um, we would be ensured that we would never hear from the candidates. So... It actually is a way to, or a mechanism to ensure that the country comes together as one, right? Or as close as possible. Uh, there would be more uh, more factions, or there could be more factions without the Electoral College during I, presidential I, campaigns. Yeah, I think the main problem, again, is that the small states would be ignored. They would mm -hmm. tend to be ignored. So... Um, we already have, you know, a, a great amount of weight in the big state delegations in Congress. Uh, you know, it's not an accident. We have a Speaker of the House who's from California, right? And a uh, situation in which the president was chosen that way, too, would mean that we'd, we'd have an even greater likelihood of people, mm -hmm. for example, from the big states being the nominees, Likely, we'd have uh, kind of downplaying of small state uh, contests in the nomination processes. I think that would be one of the first things that would happen is we'd have less attention paid to, say, uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, right? And instead, why not just cut to the chase and start talking about Florida, Texas, New York, and California? That That's where the people right. live. They're going to be making the decisions. Why should we waste our time in New Hampshire or Iowa or any small place? So 
one one tendency people have is just to say, well, there's a shiny new object. I I think it's fascinating, um, but they overlook the downside. And it seems to me that the downside is pretty obvious. It actually hasn't really changed that much from when this thing was structured. You know, in the Philadelphia Convention that wrote the Constitution, they actually discussed several different ways of choosing the chief executive, several different structures of the executive branch. And there were reasons why, for example, the national popular vote was discussed and decided against, right? People thought, no, that doesn't make actually a lot of sense. It wasn't only either that people from small states didn't like the idea, but there were also people who thought it was unlikely that you could have um, well-informed electorate if you just went straight to having a national popular vote. So the party process of choosing candidates state by state, I think, means that voters, citizens, get to know these people at least a little bit better than they would if it just came down to, all right, we're having an election in six weeks, and here's our latest uh, New York versus California choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Very interesting, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah. Well, Dr. Kevin Gutzman. Hey, Paul, sorry. Paul, yeah, before yeah. you wrap up, I have, I have two quick Good. questions, if I may. Um, one of them is, ha have you ever seen any data about, rather than counting popular vote across all 50 each state, and does that make a difference in the numbers if you look at electoral numbers versus popular numbers within each state, or is it... Does that make sense? Yes, my it does make sense. So I, I think the point you're getting at is right now, virtually all of the states have statewide elections for president. That is, uh, instead of having a district basis in California, they just have a, a statewide tally. And you're getting at, well, what if they had a district by district tally? Is that right? Like, well, well, there's the main right, Nebraska right. thing, right? But this, I guess my question really was, it's take, in a given state, so look at, you know, it's like Wisconsin, in a, given election, in, a, in a given election, does that state's popular results always match the electoral no. results? No. Or is there, so within a state, there's the, the chance of, and, and do those numbers then translate out to the across the 50 state, like your, uh, like your metaphor? I don't know if I'm getting the well, question properly. Well, I think, properly. okay, so here's an example, a famous example. Every four years, you'll hear about the ring of suburbs around Philadelphia, right? So James Carville, who was uh, Bill Clinton's chief political advisor, said, the radio yeah, he it. said that um, <laughs> Pennsylvania is Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Alabama in between, right? So <laughs> what it comes down to is... Uh, what it comes down to every election cycle is that the the now famous suburban women in the ring of suburbs around Philadelphia decide the outcome because they're the they're the significant constituency that might vote Republican, might vote Democratic. It depends on the candidates and you know whatever's in the air. Um, so if you had district, a congressional district by congressional district allocation of votes, um, those suburban, quote unquote, suburban women in the ring of suburbs around Philadelphia, they wouldn't matter as much as they do now. 
Um, and you might think, well, that's a good thing. But notice, this is not a question of whether we have an electoral college, right? It's up to the states to decide whether they want to have a Nebraska Maine kind of system or whether they want to have the one that Connecticut and, and California have. When, when the electoral college began to be used at the very beginning of the federal constitutional system, most states used a district by district basis for apportioning their electoral votes. And it was, it was only over time that they got rid of that and we came to have a situation now where Nebraska and Maine seem odd, right? It, uh, there, there's a long political story about this, but um, the bottom line is, yeah, I think it would change I think it would change the outcome. Part of the reason why, though, say, Connecticut's legislature doesn't decide tomorrow where we're going to go to a district-by-district district basis is then Connecticut as a whole would have less weight in the process than it has at the moment. So if it can say, okay, if you appeal to people in Connecticut, you're going to get seven votes, that's one thing. If, on the other hand, people knew, all right, if we appeal to people in Connecticut, we might win four congressional districts there and lose three, why would you even pay attention? So what it does, what awarding them on a statewide basis does is give each state's electorate in general more say in the system, I guess, is the way of thinking about it. But it isn't. Assuming that that state's electorate is more or less unified. Well, uh, if, if you're <laughs> the people who run the state legislature and that's where the decision is sure. made, then you're probably going to think, well, the statewide people generally agree with me. That's why they were in the majority in the state legislature. And so you're probably going to favor doing this on a statewide basis. But it does mean that people in each state's minority have less say than they would have on a on a congressional district basis. So it is interesting. Yeah, yeah the district by district seems to me to be a good middle ground between the two, but that's just me. Well, you can see again why people in majority of uh, state legislature would not like this idea. So say, for example, you're a, you're the state speaker of the House in Texas, right? You know Texas is going to vote Republican in the presidential election. But you also know that there are congressional districts that always go Democratic. So you're going to favor having it be done on a statewide basis. The same thing goes in Connecticut. You know, now we have no uh, U.S. reps from Connecticut who are Republicans. But I said at the beginning of our conversation, I've lived here for 20 years. When I moved here, there were two of them were Republicans. So then, then it made a and one of the senators was an independent. So mm -hmm. it made a difference. Um, it made a difference in Connecticut at that time, and it makes a difference in Texas now for the state majority party. That's why they do it. Did you have another question? Yeah. So that make, it makes sense from their standpoint. Yeah. Sure. I think. I, I wonder if if most people would agree with that. Most regular everyday people. Uh, I don't know. Did you have another question, Pete? No, no I think I, I babbled through both of them in one. <laughs> You're so welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Kevin Gutzman, thanks for being with us today. And uh, we want people to know if they'd like to take your class, one of your classes, they can uh, sign up, right? Pay a little money. Oh, certainly. Certainly. Yeah. Yes. For senior citizens over 62, it's 50 bucks, which is a pretty good price. A bargain at twice the price. That's yeah. right, to get a world-class <laughs> education. So I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. I enjoyed it. Thanks, so did I.
All right, well, so we'll talk a little bit about some more about the elections. I just want to remind everybody that Westcon is open for business. We're beating this COVID thing. We have students living on campus and going to class on campus. We have a lot of hybrid classes going on too, but we're fully operational. So don't worry that Westcon's going to go away. We're going to be here next semester too. So if you're thinking about starting up next semester, you should talk to admissions right now and get the process going. That is admissions at wcsu.edu. You can look up the phone number and call them too. They're very friendly there. So if you're on the fence a little bit about uh, whether to start school next semester, contact them now. Pete, we were talking a little bit about voting and registering and you found out that uh, if you're not registered to vote, you can actually go to the town in Connecticut anyway that you're, um, that you're a resident of and go sign up to vote on the day of the election. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, all the ways you could have registered uh, ahead of time online and by mail and whatever, uh, by the time this episode airs, will have passed. The cutoff was October 27th or in general, seven days before election day. Um, but yes, in Connecticut, you can register on the day of the election. Uh, it looks like there's a place in each town. There's a designated election day registration location, um, and you can find all that stuff on the uh, Connecticut website, the Secretary of the State portion of the Connecticut website. There's a, a page for election day registration locations, and you can find that there. Sure. So you can still register even on the day of the election, which is uh, November 3rd this year. Yeah. So I'm asking this for a friend, but what if you're a felon? Can you uh, sign up to vote then? Uh, yes, there are some requirements. Uh, I don't know the ins and outs. We should have asked the lawyer. Um, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> but yeah, there, it, one of the requirements for doing it is having completed certain, uh, you know, a certain set of rules. I'm not sure what they are, but yeah. Don't, the, the, the key piece of information is don't assume. Figure out... If you want to vote, and you should, uh, you know, figure out what you have to do to, to make it happen. Yeah, so if I'm still on parole or my friend is still on parole, they <laughs> may not be able to vote. It's possible, but again, I'm not a lawyer. So. Yeah, okay, so check it out. That's good. Yeah. We have um, stuff happening on campus here. We're really ramping things up and uh, being active here on campus. Yeah, obviously not like we would in a normal semester, but there are seemingly a lot of events, which is nice. It is nice. Things you seemingly can do. One thing that is off uh, campus is the farmer's market. The last one of the semester of the season for uh, Danbury is on Friday the 30th. It's down at the Danbury Rail Mu Railway Museum, which is at 120 White Street, where the big Uncle Sam is. Yeah, it's a, a brief walk. That's right. Good exercise. And uh, you can go and buy a tomato there or something from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Have you ever been to a farmer's market, Paul? I have, yes. You can buy a tomato or something. <laughs> Load up your arms with fresh produce. And sometimes I sell other stuff, like uh, they have fresh clams there. And uh, some farmer's markets sell alcohol and things like that. I don't oh know boy. if they saw that there. All right. We'll have to find out. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, also on the 30th, there are a couple events. There's a costume crawl, but I think I heard a rumor somewhere, a vicious rumor, that that might be getting canceled. So just make sure you, before you get all dressed up and head out on the 30th, make sure you double check the uh, whether that's happening or not. And then there's going to be uh, Pack Bingo Spooky Bingo that night as well at 8 o'clock. Um, and again, vicious rumors, but just make sure you're looking into that because I'm not positive of the location of it. It says in the WOW that it's in the science building lawn, and that is possible, but I'm not 100%. So don't, don't go to the lawn and then yell at me if, it, uh, if it's not there. Please try to you know, look, uh, contact PAC or look on their Instagram or, or one of those. You know, try to figure out where that is before you go. Pete, isn't one of your jobs to be the one who gets yelled at? Uh, yes, but I don't like that aspect of my job, so I try to avoid it whenever possible. You heard it here. If you have a problem, call Pete. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, I see something on the Sunday the 1st called DPL Dragons. What's of live brunches and dragons? <laughs> wow. Oh, it's a live Dungeons and Dra Dragons game sponsored by the Danbury Library from 11 to 1. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Do you ever play Dungeons bunch. and Dragons, Paul? I, I never have. Interesting. <laughs> I, I'd been in the same room when someone was playing it, but I didn't. No. Spectator sport, yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll have to do this one and then report back on how it went. Oh, that's a good idea. I'll enjoy <laughs> the brunch anyway. Uh, so the... The time to submit your ideas for the mascot has passed, but there will be a mascot town hall on November 2nd at 1030. Uh, it's going to be virtual, and um, you can get to the... If you go to the WOW on, on, the, on the web or on your WCSU app, you can get the uh, information for where and how to access that. But November 2nd at 1030, there will be a mascot town hall. So this is your chance to have a say in it. Otherwise, the suits are going to make the decision, right? Like Pete yeah, and I will decide. My put in, I submitted Pete the mascot, and so far it's leading. So if I you, abstained courteously. If you want to see Pete as the mascot, <laughs> or you don't, you got to have uh, join this mascot town hall and tell people what you want. Otherwise, somebody will be dressing up in a Pete costume. Yeah. Use your voice. One man, one vote. Don't let that happen. <laughs> well, we should figure out if we can have the Electro College at Westcon. There you go. Yeah, and then it feels like we've been talking about it over and over and over again. But uh, Tuesday, November 3rd is Election Day, so please uh, go out there and uh, vote. That's right. We aren't going to tell you how to vote. We want you to vote the way you want to vote, but it's important that you vote. And in private, we'll tell you how to vote. <laughs> if you have any questions about that email Pete or me and we'll uh, tell you there you go don't do that <laughs> <laughs> alright I think we're good right Pete I think that's it yeah right. For I'm Paul Steinmetz for Pete Puccio and this is at WCSU see you next week At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Folby. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at WCSU Media and on the university's Facebook and Twitter pages. 
and feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening.